I will speak to you in the name of the living God, who was and is and is to come, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Please be seated. The great Catholic theologian of the 20th century, Karl Rahner, writing on the future of Christianity and of the church, once said, the Christian of the future will be a mystic, or he will not be at all. I believe that Rahner was absolutely unequivocally correct in that statement, and perhaps that's why I have from the very beginning of my religious life found myself drawn to what is usually described as mystical experience within Christian mysticism. To maybe give you a better definition of what the mystical experience is within our Christian faith, I'll turn to one of the current Christian writers, theologians, and evangelists I follow more closely than anyone else today, Bishop Robert Barron, the Roman Catholic Auxiliary Bishop of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Bishop Barron defines mysticism or mystical experience this way, as the experience of spiritual things within the ordinary life, resulting in a keen conviction that the spiritual realm is far greater and more beautiful than the ordinary experience. Let me read that to you one more time. The mystical experience is that experience of the truly spiritual right here in our ordinary world, resulting in a strong conviction afterwards that the spiritual realm is far greater and more beautiful than the ordinary and the physical. For me, I suppose the start of my own draw to the mystical grew out of watching experiences that could easily be defined as mystical in the churches I grew up in. As many of you probably know, the Pentecostal churches of American Christianity focus strongly on the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit, or as they refer to him always as the Holy Ghost. And for those Christians, the Holy Ghost is a powerful force of the otherworldly and the spiritual that can move into our world today with great ease. And it's what forms and shapes their Christian faith and their experience. As I've shared with all of you before, I know I still have very vivid memories of a grandmother who would wildly shout and run in place in church while she was standing in front of her pew, and of a grandfather closing his eyes and staring upward at the ceiling with his arms in the air, and of other church members literally dancing in the middle of the aisles, crying out in ecstatic shrieks and yells, and yes, speaking in tongues. Though they would have never used that term mystical to describe those experiences, any religious scholar would have instantly recognized those types of actions as just what they were, a form of Christian mystical experience. And it was those types of mystical Holy Ghost moments that really drove my family back to the church over and over again, not just on Sunday mornings, but on Sunday nights and on Wednesday evenings and really just about any time the church doors were open. And it was those kinds of downright supernatural religious occurrences that informed their religious lives outside of the church as well. When I was trying to sort out my own faith in my high school and college years, that draw to the mystical stuck with me and took me a bit outside of those mountain holiness churches I grew up in. In college, I met a young woman whose family 
had come from the island of Haiti. And I spent some time learning about the ecstatic dancing and experiences and music of the Western Af West African religious variations of Vudon and Santeria from the islands of Haiti, Cuba, and throughout the African diaspora in the Caribbean. Later, I also discovered the mystical experiences of Islam among the Sufi traditions with that wonderful poetry of Rumi and the whirling dervishes of Turkey and the pulsating music I still love today of Kwawale, which originates out of Pakistan and India. But somewhere along the way, I found myself back home to the church again, experiencing my own mystical experiences now in the beautiful music of our Anglican tradition and in the quiet liturgies of our own version of the Catholic, where God can be mystically revealed in silence, just as real and as much as in the wild and the emotive and the dramatic. I can still remember during my first visit to the city of Rome, seeking out the church that held one of the most famous depictions of Western Catholic mystical experience in the whole history of European art. Little did I know that all these years later, my own church's Daughters of the King chapter here at All Saints would choose the name of that same saint who was captured in such beauty in white marble in that very church. In the little church of Santa Maria della Vittoria in Rome's Rione Salustiano, just being able to say that was a little scary for me this morning. There sitting in the edicule above the altar of the Cornaro Chapel is the great Baroque artist Bernini's sculptural masterpiece called The Ecstasy of St. Teresa. I wanted to see that sculpture because in it, Bernini captures the image of one of the greatest Carmelite saints of the 16th century, St. Teresa of Avila, in complete mystical ecstasy after having an angelic visitation. This isn't quite like the story we all know of the Blessed Virgin Mary and the Annunciation of the Archangel Gabriel. This experience comes upon Teresa by way of deep, dedicated prayer and devotion to God, and it comes to her in the quiet of her room in the convent. The image sculpted by Bernini captures the very rapture and swooning that St. Teresa attested to herself in her writing. In the 29th chapter of her autobiography, St. Teresa says this, I saw that day close to me toward my left side an angel in bodily form. The angel was very beautiful, and his face was so aflame that he seemed to be one of those very sublime angels that appears to be all afire. I saw in his hands a great, large, golden dart, and at the end of the iron tip there appeared to be a little bit of fire. It seemed to me this angel plunged that dart several times into my heart, and that it reached deep within me. When the angel drew it out, I thought he was carrying off with him the deepest part of me, and he left with me, all on fire, a great love of God. The pain was so great that it made me moan, and the sweetness this greatest pain caused me was so superabundant that there is no desire capable of taking it away, nor is the soul content with less than God." The loving exchange that takes place between the soul and God is so sweet 
that I beg him in his goodness to give a taste of this love to anyone who thinks I am lying. That, brothers and sisters, is a mystical experience. And I imagine that anyone who comes across anything like that will understand why a truly mystical experience convicts you to believe something that incredible is far greater and more beautiful than anything that you'll ever find here in the ordinary material world. As St. Teresa writes, once the soul is lit on fire with God's love, the soul cannot be content with anything less than God. And those are the experiences that Karl Rahner believed would make the Christian of the future a mystic or not a Christian at all. And all of this talk of mystical supernatural experiences of the fire of God's love brings us this morning to the final Sunday in this season after the Epiphany and to one of the greatest mystical experiences to be found of Jesus in the New Testament. Yes, the disciples and hundreds if not thousands of people in Galilee and Israel saw Jesus perform miracles. This whole season of scripture text has been about Jesus healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, and casting out demonic forces. Those are miraculous actions that reveal Jesus' divine powers. But this morning's text, the story of the full transfiguration of Jesus on the great high mountaintop in front of only three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, moves us beyond the miraculous and into the realm of the truly mystical. First, we have the ascent up to the top of the mountain, and that will become the very same description, the contemporary of St. Teresa of Avila and a fellow Carmelite himself, St. John of the Cross, will use in his own text entitled The Ascent of Mount Carmel. John of the Cross will use this to plot a movement of the Christian disciple going upwards throughout their life toward their true mystical union with Jesus. To go up to the top of the mountain is certainly an indicator of just where Peter, James, and John had progressed to as disciples of Jesus all those years ago. And it calls to all of us here today to keep working to climb the mountain of our own Christian discipleship as well. Next, there is the transfiguration of Jesus himself. We see it's easy to describe the miracles of Jesus, but this full transition of Jesus into something completely different is something else. The Bible describes it this way. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses <clears throat> who were talking with Jesus. For two millennia, Christian saints and theologians have tried to understand what any of this is even talking about. That word transfigured is taken from the Greek word metamorpho. So unlike all those other Greek words we find in the New Testament, our ears today can instantly understand what that word is talking about. It is the description of Jesus having a metamorphosis there on the mountaintop, changing into something completely different than what he was, a brilliant white light that could pierce any of the darkness. And that sounds quite similar to the mystical experiences that we see all the way through today, from St. Teresa to those who have it in churches in this moment now. For those in the ancient times, the darkness that came at night always symbolized the darkness in which all could be lost. 
Darkness gave hiding to predators. It allowed enemies to sneak up undetected and it could blind you of your ability to even know what was in front of you. Darkness was frightening and to see a great light was the indicator of hope that no darkness might ever be able to overcome this light. And in the mystical experience of light, that wonderful, white, glorious beauty must have been incredible. Combine that great light with the appearance to the three disciples of two of the greatest prophets of the Jewish tradition, Moses and Elijah, and it was a final supernatural moment that revealed that transfigured Jesus was the centerpiece of all God had been doing from the very beginning of the Jewish story. Jesus was something truly and mystically divine, miraculous, and incredible. At this point, poor Peter, obviously the disciple who had to say something, asked Jesus if maybe they shouldn't construct three tents for him and for Moses and for Elijah. Peter calls us all back to the tents that were set up in the desert at the time of Moses to house the very Ark of the Covenant, the very mercy seat of God, God's self. Only as Peter is speaking, the Bible says a great cloud descends upon the mountaintop and God's only voice begins speaking, identifying once and for all the transfigured Jesus as my son, the beloved, and instructing them to listen to him. And with that, this amazing mystical experience is over. There can be no question that Peter, James, and John have been changed forever. We actually hear of this great mystical experience mentioned one other time outside of the Gospels in the second letter of Peter, chapter 1, verse 18. It is certainly proof right then and there that Peter was driven throughout the rest of his life to keep climbing up that mountain, to keep listening to the voice of Jesus, to understand God's beloved in order to reach again the greatness and the beauty that he had seen for himself in the transfiguration and the appearance of the spiritual realm. And brothers and sisters, I believe that is our call today as well, to keep following Jesus, to keep listening to Jesus, to keep climbing up the mountain with Jesus and opening ourselves up to the mystical experience that is more available than our rational minds want to believe or accept today. Maybe you're out there because you've already had a mystical experience. Maybe that's what keeps drawing you back to the church each and every Sunday morning. Maybe it was incredible and overwhelming like those Holy Ghost people speaking in tongues. Or maybe it came to you in the quiet like a flaming dart on fire, warming your hearts and making you feel goosebumps on the back of your arms unexpectedly. Maybe it just happens when you're sitting here in the pew and the voices of the choir up there in the choir loft above you come out with the power of the keys and the pedals of the organ and merge together, finally making you understand that maybe there might just be something greater and more meaningful than the ordinary. Maybe you've seen the light of Christ in a moment of intense darkness in your own life. And that darkness, overcome by the light, gives you hope in something beyond it. Whatever way it is that you've witnessed the transfigured Jesus... You yourself, whether you want to believe it or not, might just be a mystic already. And if you listen to people like Karl Rahner and far less important people like an Episcopal priest like me, then I would say, hold on to the mystical. 
Because in the future, that is exactly what will distinguish our church from everything else. That is exactly what we will need to share and hold on to, to keep reminding us that there is so much more than what this material, physical world can ever offer or sustain for us. That the material and the physical that are aging and heading constantly towards death are so much less than what our faith in God through Jesus Christ calls us to believe in and to aspire to. Keep that aspiration to the spiritual above all else. And you too will become and continue to be a Christian mystic. Amen.